This is episode 69 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 69 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we chat with Dr. Kristen Collier, a medical internist and the director of the University of Michigan Medical School's program on health, spirituality, and religion. We chat about the role that the liberal arts can and should play in the formation of physicians and the role that faith and spirituality can play in the patient-doctor relationship. Let's sit down together for this wonderful conversation. Well, Kristen Collier, thank you so much for coming to be with us on the podcast. Thanks, Ken. Happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you do your studies? Kind of those sorts of things. Sure. So I am a medical doctor in terms of my profession. I'm an internist. So for those listeners that may not be familiar with an internist, an internist um, is a doctor who takes care of adults across the spectrum, from health all the way to complex disease. Um, We can see any person age 17 to all the way up. Um, I have a patient who's 102. Um, We see adults um, across the spectrum. Most of us um, take care of older adults with complex chronic disease. Okay. And where did you do your studies? So I did all of my studies at the University of Michigan, which is hard to say on this campus. Um, So I'm a lifelong Wolverine. Go blue, I have to say that, especially for Carter's benefit. Undergraduate studies in biology, and then did medical school at the University of Michigan also, and then did my internship, medical residency, and chief residency in internal medicine also at the Michigan hospitals. Loved it so much you couldn't get away. I couldn't get away. You know, I sort of joke that after my chief residency, um, you know, I was so sort of tired that I just kept on in academics. Um, so I'm a sort of a accidental academic. But I have to say, I've been really, really blessed with the opportunities I've had at Michigan. I'm really happy that I stayed. Now, you presented at our fall conference. Do you do academic writing as well? Or are you primarily? I do. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess my my main professional hat, I would say, would be a clinician educator. So I'm a primary care doctor. So internists can be do a variety of of you know, in settings. So you can be a hospitalist, right? You can be a primary care doctor. Internists can do a fellowship. So you can do a fellowship after your medicine residency and do cardiology, pulmonary care, et cetera. But I see it as a general internist and I chose to do primary care. So I see adults in continuity over time and help them navigate their health and illness and disease um, across their lifespan. Um, so, and I think that's my, that's my passion is seeing patients. Um, I also really like to educate. So I, I teach, um, I do direct teaching of medical students in the medical school. I teach in part of the doctoring course and our chief concern course. Um, I do some work with our program on religion and spirituality with, with course work there. And then I also um, help run our residency program. So we have an internal medicine residency program at Michigan Medicine, and I'm one of the associate program directors for, for that. And I oversee our primary care track, and there's a lot of education, curricular development through that. Um, but I also have a small, I would say, a small foot in the research world. I mean, my academic niche, I would say, over the past few years is the intersection of medicine and religion and spirituality. And so I've been able to, um, with the help of a lot of collaborators, um, get some of our work published and some 
um, quote unquote academic journals like JAMA and JGIM and the Annals of Internal Medicine. And I also like to do just do some sort of maybe non-academic writing that sort of is at the intersection of sort of theology and medicine. I've been in lucky enough to get a couple of pieces published in Church Life Journal mm-hmm. um, and Theopolis and America Magazine. So um, I, I've been really I, happy to be able to sort of lately get into that space of academic writing. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, you are the creator in, with a, with a yeah, group, I know, but right. the creator and director right. of the University of Michigan Medical School's program, as you say, on health, spirituality, and religion. What is that program's mission, and from where did that inspiration come to, to even propose such a program? Yeah, so I'm the founding director of the University of Michigan Medical School Program of Health, Spirituality, and Religion. Um, and the program, Genesis, started, I would say, with, with an idea a couple years before we started. So our first academic year was 2017. So it was around 2015, 2016, that I was um, on my path of converting to Christianity and also at the same time actually um, creating and teaching a course on the undergraduate campus at U of M to the freshmen that ended up being called um, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, Themes of Medicine in the Old New Testament. And so during the teaching of that course, um, I became really aware of literature um, and research that showed that patients really want their healthcare providers to understand them in the fullness of their humanity. And for a lot of our patients, they come to our healthcare system with deeply held commitments, um, well, many of them deeply religious. And we don't do a great job of like understanding how their faith plays into their medical decision making. We don't do a good job of like recognizing spiritual distress or existential distress. That's very common with chronic and complex illness and how to use our interprofessional teams of our chaplains and lay clergy to help our patients. And so um, I sort of started sort of digging into that space and found that the AAMC, which is the American Association of Medical Colleges, and some of the other medical groups actually um, want our medical students to have what they deem are spiritual competencies, being able to be able to take a spiritual history from patient, be able to recognize spiritual stress, and actually also realize how their own spirituality actually helps them provide meaning in their vocational journey. And became very motivated to try to do something about this gap in care for our patients. But also, I think I saw a gap in medical education or medical school in this space. And so I had, you know, this, this seed that I wanted to act on um, for myself and, and, and understand my own gaps in this space, but also then for our, for our learners. And so our medical school around that time was undergoing this big like curricular redesign. And so I took my literature and my packet and my energy to the dean's office and said, I would love as you restructure the curriculum to be able to sort of work on curriculum in this space. And it was really sort of a miracle that at the same time, uh, a private family had had approached the medical school and said, we want to fund actually some type of initiative on religion and spirituality. So we had this big dinner with like some chaplains and some of the deans and this family and the development office and some faculty. And we discussed what could a program look like at the University of Michigan. And shortly thereafter, I got a call from the dean's office and they said they wanted me to sort of start a program at the hospital, um, uh, at the med school uh, focused on medicine and religion. And so we sort of did this listening tour. We talked to all the stakeholders at this place. What could a program look like? How would this benefit us in terms of the things we say we care about? Diversity, equity, inclusion, admissions, wellness, whole person care. And after um, a chat with folks at our own place and actually a lot of partners across the country who've been involved in such centers at their own place, we started our program in, in 2017. And the goals of the program, I would say, are, are probably fourfold. I mean, the first, the first goal is to have a, a place where conversations of meaning are legitimized at the med school for our, for our students, faculty, and staff. And we, we have a lecture series that is like the cornerstone of our program that's an endowed 
speaker series from our donors. It's called the Wall Family Speaker Series on Health, Spirituality, and Religion. And so once a month, we host a speaker from across the country who's able to speak on the intersection of medicine and religion. And that's a place for us to get together. I mean, now it's by Zoom because of the pandemic. For us to get together and, and sort of understand sort of some, some conversations and discuss some big topics. Otherwise, I don't think we have enough space for. And then offshoots of that are to support the students. We have curriculum for all our students. We have electives for our students in the ICU and in the branches. Um, we have um, uh, funding and support through our core faculty. My other core faculty right now with me are Dr. Phil Choi in Palm Creek Care and Dr. Adam Burge from the OBGYN department. Uh, we, we help fund and support student research projects. Um, we mentor students. We help support student groups like Dr. Burge mentors JEMSA, which is, is the Jewish Medical Students Association. I'm pretty involved with CMD, which is our Christian Medical Dental Association. And then we also hope to get Michigan Medicine on the map in terms of this is a space where a, a scholarship is happening in the space. So I said we've been able to publish. And we also take our work um, sort of on the road. So um, my, my group from the residency program, we just got back, for example, from APTIM, which is a big national conference for program directors for internal medicine. And we talked about conscience protection, like how do we balance opt-out requests from physicians in training who oftentimes have, have faith commitments that would preclude them from doing certain types of procedures or prescribing, how would we balance that with patient-centered care? Um, with, again, the hope of encouraging these conversations on a broader scale in medical education. So that's where we're at right now. We hope to grow in the future, but that's currently where we're at five years five years in. Wow. How many students are involved in your programs? So the program touches every student because okay. we have curriculum that all the students take. Um, okay. So we technically touch everybody. And then the speaker series draws a lot of folks. So since 2017, we've almost had 2,000 people come through our speaker series, um, which has been great. And then we have students come through our electives. Um, and we have a, a very solid amount of students that come through, even though it's like an opt-in. So for example, the clinical elective is in the ICU. is called the Healing Presence. And what happens is when you're on a sub-internship in the ICU as a senior medical student, all the sub-I's in the ICUs for that month are emailed and saying, do you want to be part of this, this elective called the Healing Presence, where you will round on your patients with a chaplain, and then you will... Once a week, go with our chaplain for an hour and do um, reflection and verbatims like you would do with clinical pastoral education training a bit, reflecting your own spirituality, the patient's spirituality. And I'm surprised, actually, how many students want to do that, given the fact that it's like extra work and they're a fourth year medical student and they're in the ICU, so they don't want to miss anything. We've had really good engagement. And then we all mentor a handful of students and also, again, mentor these research projects. And we really were happy a few weeks ago, I mentioned to you offline that we had been in Portland recently for the Conference of Medicine and Religion. We were able to take a good group of students out there to present their work and get them engaged with other folks across the country who do this work. Wow. Yeah. Do you or the program experience any pushback from colleagues or administrators? You know, because I can see this. Oh, yeah, no, I, I that's know. a good question. Yeah. That's, a, that's a natural good question. Um, so, no, I mean, I, we've been really, people are surprised, actually, when I, when I give talks about, I, I give talks across the country on different aspects of medicine and religion, and people are really surprised, like, y'all have this, have this program in Michigan? Like, people know about it and like, that's okay. You know, I'm like, yeah, we do, you know? Um, so we've been really supported. I just want to sort of give a shout out to a couple of people who've really supported me. Dr. Joe Kolars, who's um, one of the deans and he's been super supportive and Raj Mangrukar, who's our previous um, dean oversaw the curriculum. They've been super supportive. And I've really been impressed with how many folks from across the health system have have either emailed me or engaged with us in some way where they, where they've expressed appreciation for the space a space to ask deep questions and to engage in a different level of maybe conversation that maybe previously we haven't had this explicit space for. We know that, um, you know, I'm sure there are folks that wonder like what we're doing because we're really the only sort of secular public school in the country that has this type of program integrated at the medical school. I mean, a lot of places 
do have programs or institutes on medicine and religion, but they're either associated with like a divinity school, um, like University of Chicago or Duke, or, or maybe like an isolated research silo like Harvard's Institute. So we're pretty unique. And sometimes if there is a little bit of like, I don't want to say pushback, but a little bit of skepticism is like, what are y'all doing here? You know, I just try to remind remind um, folks that we support the work of the university, right? We are basically one piece of the pie in these, I think, these core tenets of the university says that they care about. So we say we care about diversity, equity, inclusion. Well, religious, um, you know, diversity is a very underappreciated aspect of diversity. And so we help support our students. Otherwise, we feel marginalized there and help to support them in their in their vocational journey. We help support um, work towards making sure that our students are able to attending to whole person care, you know, and patient satisfaction, right? A lot of data to support them and patients are seen on this level that they feel like their hospital stays better and they feel more seen and, and, and piece of uh, comfort in their care. Um, we also support the research mission of the university. Uh, we know there's a huge crisis in physician burnout. Um, we do work there. I mean, we know that actually the um, National Academy of Medical Sciences has this big report that came out a couple of years ago. So it was like a task um, force on physician burnout. And they said one of the biggest risks for burnout is loss of meaning in your vocation. And so they actually made um, um, a statement that they said that one of the solutions forward is to provide more pathways of meaning making for people at work. We know a lot of physicians come into medicine out of their spiritual and religious commitments. And what you don't want to have happen is for those folks to come into the academic medical center and to feel like they've got to check their faith at the door to be considered a legitimate scientist. When we know that their inherent religion spirituality is actually a pathway through which they make meaning and to sort of cut that off in a place where like, you know, training is tough, medical school is tough, it would be the detriment of that learner. And if we're going to say we want to help and facilitate people in all ways that they can be well, why would we not want to sort of make sure that these folks feel supported? So I do think that, you know, the the support has been really strong. I mean, realistically, it is really tough, I think, in today's world with like budgets and financial constraints to be supported in all the ways that we would like to. But we've been really happy to have support from, you know, other sources to be and to be continuing our work. And, and we're, we're always hopeful that that will continue. You mentioned that part of the inspiration was your own journey to Christianity. Right, right. And I could see this being also something that then affects, as you're mentioning, uh, you know, doctor burnout, oh, physician yeah. burnout. Right. Um, in your own work, how does being a practicing Christian mm. affect your vocation mm. as as a physician, do you think? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, as someone who had, I would say, a late life, or maybe I want to say a midlife conversion. Hopefully I'm only in <laughs> my middle. Mid- I don't yeah. know. God only knows. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because I like really clearly like see the before and the after, you know. And so I, one of the talks that I give um, at some places when I've been asked to give talks at, at some of the schools across this fine country is sort of on like the theolo- theology of medicine. Like what does a theology of medicine look like? And like it should, you know, upon who or what is it based? And as a Christian person, obviously, this is my theology of medicine is based on Jesus Christ. And what can we learn from Jesus as the great physician? What kind of attributes did he demonstrate? Um and how can we learn from his work um, how to be and what the, what the view of the good is and such. And so, I mean, just just briefly, I think, you know, I, I know this maybe sounds cliche, but I didn't have this view before. Just thinking about seeing your patients made in the image of God is really a, a beautiful um, vehicle through which to sort of make meaning. Like you see your patients made as the, as the, as the image bearers. And so that encounter with patients right there, right, is, is sacred space. I didn't see them that way before. Um, I don't know how I saw them, but I didn't see them that way. 
Um, so that my faith has deeply influenced my view of the patient and not just the patient, but the, the patient physician encounter. I know this, this covenantal language that's used versus this contract model. I love thinking about that and thinking um, about what that should look like, about how I, how I love my patients, care for my patients. Um, the sort of the second way I think my faith is informed my view of medicine is my view of the body has dramatically evolved. Um, I was trained as a uh, biological scientist, um, went to medical school, um, didn't have, I think, a proper anthropology, a philosophical anthropology of, of the importance of the body. And now as a Christian, I know that that matter matters because we're made in God's image and made by God, but also our dignity is magnified uh, by the by the incarnation. Um, and so I, I view the body much differently. And I think the third way is, I would say, is just thinking about what it means to be um, a physician who practices in a nonviolent way. So I'm a pro-life convert, um, and I don't believe that death and intentional aiming at the killing of patients should ever be part of the healing profession. So used to be, you know, um, pro-choice, used to be totally fine with euthanasia, physicians as suicide, and now I'm not. And then I think the last way is just thinking about my interest within medicine, and this has affected some of the things that I've chosen to do and some jobs that I've turned down, about what it means to think about addressing folks that are um, at the margins of society, uh, prenatal child, and the incarcerated. Um, so thinking about things that I do, for example, like I turned down a concierge medicine job a few years ago, not because those folks don't deserve care, but that that job just didn't align with, align with my theology of medicine. Um, and, you know, doing work before the pandemic and training prisoner health, health aides, like that that work um, to work with incarcerated women, again, flows out of my theology of medicine. There, so there have been practical implications for me in terms of like work that I do, talks that I choose to give, or, um, you know, uh, even, again, the way that I view the patient-physician relationship. And again, all, you know, this reason of trying to reflect Christ back. Um, I, I didn't have this viewpoint before. And, um, you know, I lament the fact that I didn't have this, my faith, when I went through the tough trials of medical training and residency training, because that was a quite awful time. Um, but I'm really thankful for where I am now. Thanks. Praise to be, be to God, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that kind of feeds into a question I want to ask about. You presented at the 2021 Fall Conference, oh, yeah. the Center's Fall Conference, as part of a panel mm. on uh, St. John Henry mm. Newman and healthcare. And you spoke on the dignity of physicians. Now, I'm going to link to the talk in, oh, in uh, the show oh, yeah. notes here. But mm -hmm. I was struck uh, in your reflections by your discussion of the need for medical education uh, to allow for kind of a liberal arts component mm. um, mm -hmm. in order to counterbalance the dominant mechanical model of the body, some of which you were just right. kind of referring right. to, right. that turns doctors into, and I'm using your words here, mere technicians taking care of complex right. machines. Right. Can you unpack a bit of that idea for our listeners? What, what, uh, how would that even look in practice? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... I, mean, I, I love that phrase. I don't know if I made it up or if I borrowed it from somebody, but like, you know, we are, you know, we are not technicians taking care of complex machines. You know, we are human beings taking care of the image bearers. And, um, you know, how did like, how did we get here? I mean, I think, you know, just thinking about, again, my, I can only speak from my experience, obviously, but thinking about the way that I sort of was quote unquote brought up or catechized within medical education, how to see the body and sort of what to sort of think. I, I totally get it, right? I mean, people come into medical school to take care of human beings, you know, and, and, and such. But then there's so much 
biomedicine to learn, you know, there's so much science to get through. Um, but what happens in, in more and more, especially is I think, um, you know, there's science is so rapidly evolving as well. So the medical education is highly technical and, and highly scientific, which it, it has to be. But I think part of it has we've stripped away some other elements that I think would be important that I'll sort of talk about. But I think what happens is it's so bioreductionistic that by the end of medical school, I think you're tempted to see life as just merely as like molecules in motion, you know. Um, and 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 I, I just wonder about our sort of numbers of burnout and how this relates to this to this problem. But I think honestly, I think we talked about this in the panel a bit. I think this this if we want to diagnose the problem, this this problem comes back even farther back before people get to medical school. And I we in the in the panel and in the piece that Bill Bonner and I wrote for Church Life Journal. We talk about um, St. John Henry Newman's idea of university and that piece. And he uses this metaphor in the piece, which is his metaphor for a liberal arts education of like the circle of knowledge. And so he says that historically, or what the ideal would be, right, is that your learners would have a liberal arts education that would expose them to the entirety of reality, which is all the sciences, let's say, and he includes obviously the arts as like a science theology included in philosophy, have these slices of a pie. And what happens in traditional medic medical education, especially for folks that don't have any exposure to humanities, is that certain slices of, this, of the pie are either disproportionately sized or have been totally removed. And so he said what happens is that you, you become sort of so much self-contained in your own siloed slice. So I just for myself as a biologist, as a scientist, I became totally... Um, you know, self-contained within the science of medicine and biomedicine. And what happens, Newman says, is that you, if you become self-contained, you start to like try to answer questions within your own domain that you really can't and that you shouldn't. So for example, you know, we know that like science cannot answer, like it can answer some questions of like what and how, but the why questions and causes of, like questions of final causation and purpose and meaning like medicine can't really answer. And so we have so many patients that come to us in moments of great need. And we know that a space within liberal arts has the potential to reclaim space for productive wondering about the nature of human existence, the big questions that scholars and artists have wrestled with for centuries that are actually beneficial to the practice of medicine. And so Medical education definitely has tried to like reclaim some of this with you'll see certain medical schools have um, like pathways within medical humanities and such. But even in the in the church life piece, we say that we feel like these fall short if because it's like like what is if you say human, if you have a pathway, let's say in humanism and medicine, what is the view of the human person onto which your medicine is being practiced? And so we, we talk about the sort of malformed or misshapen anthropology. And as Christians, we say that like even these, even though they're well-meaning, these other pathways are encroaching into a space where, where they can't be or they shouldn't be. And we have to preserve like theology in the circle of knowledge and like human calls you cultivate in this circle and this encounter with the integrity of the circle, this habit of mind, which is philosophical, which you can go through the entire circle. And this habit of mind, he says, also helps you see the sciences in relation to one another. Because medical education, you've probably heard this analogy before, can be almost like this fire hose where you're getting all these facts. And Newman says, like, your, your education should not be a sum accretion of discrete facts that are, not, that are not connected. You should be able to see your science in relationship to the other sciences. And so, so what we sort of propose, and others have proposed, that out of this fractioned sort of educational model, we 
we, we get almost like a fragmented view of persons, not only the learner, we say in the panel, because we have the dignity of the learner and the physician and the patient, but also, you know, then there's this fragmented view of the, of the patient as well. And so in this piece and in other talks we've given on Newman, we say we can't expect either our physicians to go out into the world and treat whole persons if they themselves haven't been seen as whole persons. And how are they encountered as a student um, within the within the educational system? And so there's this fragmentation of medicine. But I think the other problem to diagnose it, if you think about med ed and you think about loss of maybe a, the liberal arts, which I know many people have been really upset about, um, would be just to, a historical context would be to think about even Jeff Bishop's work, who draws on Foucault about medicine, um, having like a fear of metaphysics, you know, of like he draws on Foucault's work in particular, but, you know, in, you know, in the a couple centuries ago, right, and to think about like France and thinking about sort of the, the, the war and the conflict that's happened over time in different parts of the world where there has become a distrust of the church. And a lot of, as you know, the church was responsible for some of the first hospitals. And so science wanted to sort of get away from the church and all things metaphysical. And so Jeff Bishop talks about, you know, that medicine has become totally forgetful of all metaphysical goods. And so our patients, again, are just seen as like machines. And but they have, they're more than that. And 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 what I sort of want to wrap up this question, but when I think of Newman too, he talks about that man doesn't just have a physical nature. He has a moral and religious nature. So we shouldn't be educating our students as if this was not the reality. And so there's a lot to do, but I love at the end of Tissory Corps, um, Bishop says like, may it be only that theology can save medicine. And I just love that. But it's thinking about the role that we should have, especially as Christian educators of orienting the telos of medicine towards the correct anthropology that's built on truth and truth being Jesus Christ. How did this partnership, by the way, come together with you and Bo and and Brett Robinson uh, from the McGrath Institute? How did your panel come? How fun. So (laughs) Bo and I talk about this all the time because it's just like one of those cool things. Um, So actually it was at the... Nicola Fall Center Fall Conference, the one before the pandemic, the last live one before the pandemic. On friendship? Mm -hmm, On friendship. Yeah. And I just happened to be like wandering around, like not sure which like paper I was going to go to. And I was like, Bo Bonner, he's talking about like friendship and like great books. I'm like, that sounds like pretty fun, you know? So I pop in there. And so I went to his paper and his paper was like really lovely about how, you know, your great books can be considered like your friends about how they teach you. It was just such a lovely talk, whatever. So we started chatting after that and, you know, this friendship developed and um, then a couple, you know, maybe maybe a year after that or so, he's like, I've been kicking around this like Newman idea and I've talked to, he, you know, talked to some big Newman conferences and such. And I think that this work might sort of be um, sort of brought more to life um, if I had a, a medical, medical doctor to work on it with, because I want to talk about, because he works at a, at a college that helps train future healthcare professionals. So he, he was looking for a partner in crime, so to speak, to work <laughs> on the Newman piece. Um, and I said, sure, I know absolutely nothing about John Henry Newman. I don't know who he is, but I'm happy to learn. And so I really started like digging in. And, and for someone who really wasn't used to reading Newman, like I had no idea like what was going on but with help of my husband Tim helps me sort of read Newman and sort of wrestle with him and and Bo we put this piece together for Church Life Journal and then we wanted to try to submit to the fall conference but we wanted a perspective that sort of spoke to the patient the physician and the learner and Brett had this story about about his mom and so we came together the three of us to do the panel but it's funny again how I just want to put a plug I'm sure everyone who listened to this podcast has been to the conference but the conference is a beautiful garden through which friendships can grow and flourish so it came that friendship came and that collaboration came actually as a direct result of the conference wow yeah I I gotta say I did not know that yeah, the yeah. answer to that yeah. and so that was not a leading yeah, question yeah no, but... yeah so the plug for the conference <laughs> 
the garden of friendships. You heard it here, folks. Yeah, totally. Come, come and totally. So, but thank, I just want to give a thanks out to, yeah. shout out to Bo Bonner too, because like Bo Bonner has been like incredibly patient with me as someone who like doesn't have the type of education that probably one should have at this point. I'm trying to make up for lost time as a scientist raised in my silo to start reading broadly. So again, we were talking sort of at first, right? This sort of di- there's these discourse communities, right? Of like you have a certain language in your profession, and Bo's like a philosopher, right? And I'm like a scientist, and we he would he'd say things. Things and like I wasn't sure so we go back and forth but he's also been incredibly patient with me as we've like learned to talk about Newman together and that's crazy though to I mean I've never done a lot of reading in Newman either I know what I have has been very dense yeah and so diving in there like you say having zero background right. I mean that also that speaks to what you're talking about here the, the importance of liberal education yeah true right? yeah totally that's totally amazing. Well, uh, this past spring, speaking of reading books and discussing yeah. them, this past spring in collaboration with the Burr Oak Foundation uh, there at, at mm-hmm. UM, you moderated a series of presentations by our own director, uh, Carter Sneed, about the themes of his book, What It Means to Be Human. Were there any highlights from those conversations that stick out in your mind? Yeah, I just want to give a shout out to Carter. He's incredibly busy, um, and he took time to um, have a webinar series with my program on health, spiritual, and religion. We co-hosted it with the um, Baroque Foundation in part um, from a grant from the Epgar Foundation. And we were able to go through his book. And um, yeah, as a physician, so many points that he brought up resonated with me. I think, you know, this I had never heard before this concept, which I think he said is borrowed from Charles Taylor, I believe, um, about expressive individualism. And for people who don't know expressive individualism, um, in its purest sense, is, that, is this idea that the you know individual atomized self is the fundamental unit of human reality, and and this self is not at all you know um, bound by any sort of unchosen obligations and attachments, and really is just the point of existence in this in this anthropology is to operationalize one's will. Um, and so in that, which I you know Tim and I talk about this a lot about this idea of like how do we view the body and this dualism that exists in medicine. Well, there's this dualism inherent in expressive individualism where because the will is so is basically prioritized, the mind is sort of prioritized in this anthropology and the body is subverted in this view of like what the human person is. And then Carter talked about like the results then of this anthropology. And again, thinking about, you know, what flows out of that and our policies um, around abortion and end of life and such. And as physicians, I think a ton, even though um, PASNE, Physicians Society Euthanasia is not legal in Michigan, you know, we've vetoed it twice, I think, or shot it down twice. I I think a lot about it, you know. And so the parts about that that spoke a lot to me, too, are then, again, like the view of the body. And and, um, I even think of, I'm looking at the picture here in the wall of McIntyre here about, he says, we are forgetful of the body. And like, what does that, what does that mean in medicine? And how do our, this expressive individualism is, as Carter says, it doesn't acknowledge our like embodied reality. And like, I think as a physician who takes care of patients with mostly chronic illness, you know, and I think again of McIntyre saying we are all on a certain scale of disability in our lives. I think about my patients who have been like left behind in this expressive individualism and the policies that result out of that. Because again, it does not acknowledge and make space for our embodied reality. So I see the results of that with my patients. But I also really am struck by also just as a physician thinking about, and I've been thinking about this too with the help of some other folks, and I know Bishop writes a lot on transhumanism, about augmentation of the body, um, especially technological augmentation in this view that like science can overcome death and that we're able to sort of with augmentation of the body create this like 
post-human reality. I think of, I I think it was an after virtue McIntyre writes that like, in order for us to answer the question, what am I to do? He says, you need to understand um, of what story or stories am I a part? And expressive individualism, Carter said, which I love, is monological and ahistorical. You know, there is no history of which you're a part. There's no, it's all based on your internal self-narrative, what you've decided to be. And so because of that, you know, there's no anchoring to this like larger story. And to me then, and how this sort of then what, how that got me thinking about transhumanism a bit and the body is that, you know, again, science, again, being siloed by itself, right, doesn't have a cosmology. Like it doesn't have to think about that story and this forgetfulness of our history. Science like doesn't have like a cosmology, a beginning or like a telos, an end, right? And if you don't have like an idea of like where you came from or like where you're going, you know, there can be no meaning. And so then I think of Carter saying, and if you basically live in that framework of expressive individualism, your body is just sort of bio stuff that you can sort of do whatever you want to, transhumanism and augmentation, whatever, um, because it just doesn't matter. So I thought a lot about that idea that he talks about how expressive individualism is, is ahistorical, you know, monological, there's no embedded history, how, how that affects our view of the body, what we can do to the body. Um, so those are the points that really, that really struck me. And again, just thinking about even like, which I think is beautiful, his Expressive individualism sort of it sort of requires you to be forgetful, forgetful of where you came from and the gratitude that you should have, you know, and where you're going. This anticipatory gratitude he talks about of anticipating yourself being frail and older and being grateful for that. Um, and so he says, like the antidote to that is like a type of remembering. And I just think that's so lovely. So there's a lot to think about, but the, specifically the things that, as a physician thinking about how our policies of expressive individualism have been forgetful of the body how that sort of impacts our patients, especially vulnerable, dependent, patients with disability, prenatal children, people at end of life. Um, It's helped me think a lot about my own thoughts more deeply in those spaces. Well, Kristen Collier, thank you so yeah, much for a great sure conversation, and thank you sure. for for your contributions to the conference and for your advocating for the conference. Yeah, too. no, it's a great conference. I appreciate being here. Thanks so much. Thank you to Dr. Kristen Collier. In the show notes, you will find links to her recorded panel discussion at our 2021 fall conference, and to several of her published written articles. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. Good decisions.